Hello, Compact Nation podcast listeners. This is Andrew with a quick message before we jump into today's show. For our next episode, we want to address the questions and the ideas all of you have about doing the work of higher education community engagement in the face of coronavirus and more generally in the face of the kinds of disasters that disrupt our communities, our institutions, and our work. We know that all of you are working hard to keep your community-engaged teaching and research and partnerships alive in this challenging moment, and so we want to talk about that. We're opening up a call-in line so you can give us your questions and your thoughts. The line is 617-237-6381. That's 617-237-6381. You can also find that information on our show page, compact.org slash podcast. That's compact.org slash podcast. We'd love to hear what you have to say, and we'd love to share the audio on the air. So in leaving a question or a thought, you'd also be giving us permission to play that on the next podcast. We know that all of you are working hard to do the best work you can under very difficult circumstances, and we think we could all learn from each other. So we really will appreciate your sharing those ideas by Friday, March 27. So again, all the information at compact.org slash podcast. Thank you in advance for participating and helping us address the things that you all are thinking about as we go through this difficult time together. We hope you're all staying healthy, staying safe, staying sane, taking care of each other. And now here comes our regular show. on the civic engagement side, it really was a desire to do good in the world in many different ways, whether that's service learning, it was internships and community, or really any other attempt to hear community voice and contribute in some way. As juxtaposed to social innovation, at least when we started this project, which was much more of an emphasis on the idea and the entrepreneur that in the light of all the challenges in the world, that one individual could have an idea that would make a difference. By the end of it, we saw much more similarity between the two. Hi, I'm Marisol Morales. I'm Emily Shields. And I'm Andrew Seligson, and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Normally at this point in the podcast, we say to each other, how are you doing? But that seems like a stupid question right now. Uh, So how's everybody holding up? How's, How's it feeling out there where you are? What's happening? Well, I'm working from home, which is kind of normal. So uh, in that sense, not much has changed. Just being super vigilant uh, with uh, when I go out and uh, and interacting with my uh, parents. We're getting ready to work from home as a team for at least a couple weeks um, with my children and my husband. So I don't know what that's going to be like, but... Wish me luck. Um, Yeah, and we're just, you know, working to support our member campuses, um, our national service members that might be impacted by um, campuses making changes or community organizations making changes and just uh, trying to support 
all the people we work with. Yeah, I'm working at home. Uh, it's strange. I always work at home a fair amount in the evenings on the weekends. I hate working from home. Like I hate not going into the office, having that as the kind of centerpiece of my work day. Uh, it's just, it has always been a depressing thing to me. So I'm trying to not experience it that way. And something about the fact that all of us are doing it makes it a little different, but, uh, yeah, obviously for us, part of the big news was we spent this week taking apart a conference we had spent like two years building. So that, that was not a really fun, uh, activity. Um, so I think most people who are listening to this probably have already heard if they needed to know that compact 20 that was to be held in Seattle is off. Obviously Seattle, uh, you know, I think will turn out to have been sort of the tip of the spear for this. And so people out there have been dealing with some of the very worst aspects already. Um, so yeah, just thinking a lot about the people who were so helpful to us uh, on member campuses and others in Seattle at Washington Campus Compact. And now I think, right, it's kind of it is it feels weird that kind of as we proceed, this is like moving around the country, which is obviously the way it works. But there's something about it. As you see the places, it's starting to really heat up in Boston. So we're feeling that very much here um, and kind of, yeah, feeling a big city sort of closed down. It's just a strange feeling. Have the schools closed down in Boston? You know, it's a funny thing about, I'm pretty sure all across Massachusetts are closing. Um, not having kids in the schools, it's not the first thing I, uh, I think about. Um, but I, so I'm going now to look because I'm focused on like schools where people uh, in our office, have kids, et cetera. Right now, yeah, it's saying Boston schools are staying open as other districts across Massachusetts are closing. I don't know why that is. Yeah. Well, it's the same reason why I think institutions of higher education are trying to figure out how to support their most vulnerable students, right? Uh, this is a place where a lot of kids go for, for meals, a safe place to be if their parents don't have the ability to take time off or work from home. Um, so it is a social safety net that, you know, it's not as easy to sort of turn the lights off as, as some other places. Um, I think, you know, the other piece is like how our institutions of higher education have been responding to this in light of like it's sort of closeness to spring break, either students being out and coming back. And then, you know, also how do you turn the ship on a, you know, sort of huge enterprise um, in a short amount of time and being able to, you know, do our own role in helping to minimize contraction. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would say that in, you know, it has been fascinating given our role as an organization that uh, whose central purpose is to encourage a particular sector to focus on the common good all the time. The degree to which we're actually having conversations all across the country about the common good and about how people can take action that protects other people. Like for me, that's been a very striking thing and something that I feel like is very unusual in public discourse in the United States. Um, and it's obviously it's still in a context and, uh, you know, like everything else in our country, this is affecting different people very differently in part based on all sorts of pre-existing 
uh, inequalities, vulnerabilities, et cetera. But, but just the fact that there have been that many major institutions and organizations, sports leagues, whatever, basically very quickly, it feels like recognizing what they need to do to be on the right side of this, of this public health issue that, that has been striking to me. So here we are. Uh, so we're going to roll into our interview for this episode. Um, and for me, it feels quite timely, although it's not about coronavirus, it's not about uh, public health issues in particular. I had the opportunity to interview uh, the editors of a new book that Campus Compact is just bringing out. Um, so I sat down with Eric Malin and Amanda Moore McBride. Amanda is the Morris Endowed Dean and Professor of Social Work at the University of Denver. She was formerly the executive director and a faculty member, uh, but executive director of the Gephardt Institute at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, Eric Malin is the distinguished faculty fellow in the Kennan Institute for Politics and a lecturer in the Sanford School of Public Policy. And Eric, for many years, was the founder and, and creator of Duke Engage at Duke University. And together, they have co-edited a book called Connecting Civic Engagement and Social Innovation Toward Higher Education's Democratic Promise that is published by Campus Compact and, and brought out in physical form, et cetera, by our publishing partner, Stylus. And it feels timely to me in part because, you know, the question that they're asking is how institutions of higher education can build capacity for people to work together to address the public challenges we face with civic engagement and social innovation being kind of two approaches to that. But it feels like right now, this question of how we build that capacity in our communities across the country, across the world, uh, it feels like the question that we need to be thinking about looking forward, not only to respond to what we're facing now, but also to be better prepared to minimize risk, to have communities that are more egalitarian, more participatory, more resilient in the face of a whole range of challenges. So uh, hopefully people will find this a useful conversation. I, I really enjoyed talking to Amanda and Eric, and here is that interview now. Amanda Moore McBride and Eric Mullen, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Andrew. Looking forward to our conversation. So you have uh, completed work on a book about civic engagement, social innovation, higher education. And I wanted to start by just asking you to talk a little bit about where the book came from, how, how you came to be interested in uh, putting a book together on the intersection of those two forms of education or zones of participation or however you think about what that is. Yeah, well, um, my recollection, and this has been long in the making, is that uh, I was watching a TED Talk that Amanda gave, and um, Amanda began to talk ab about this issue and particularly questioning 
the impetus that our students felt around social innovation. Amanda, if I'm not remembering this correctly, jump in. And when I when I saw that, um, Amanda and I had worked on a number of things together, uh, a pretty big project on global service learning. And I called her and said, Amanda, I'm thinking about the same thing on my campus. And Amanda, who is the entrepreneurial one amongst us, um, uh, said, let's, let's do something with this, which led to a think tank at WashU and then uh, the idea for the book. And so um, as the civic engagement leaders on our campuses, we had been noticing the rise of social innovation and entrepreneurship uh, simultaneously and said, there's something here, let's do something with it. And um, we did. I seem to remember one other nuance, which is that we decided to be constructively critical. Uh, we found that on both of our campuses, there was this ascent and that uh, our students were thinking about social innovation efforts really devoid from uh, community assets, community need, from the larger public policy context. And so we decided to stop complaining about it and uh, try and do something about it. Andrew, another thing I'd add is that uh, in the time that it took um, to do the book, and Amanda and I had both uh, professional and personal challenges that made this take longer than we had hoped, our own roles on our campuses, and we write about this, changed. Uh, Amanda uh, became the dean of the School of Social Work at the University of Denver. Uh, I became sort of embraced by the social innovation movement on Duke's campus. And so um, I think we moved from, Amanda, if this is uh, the right way to put it, from sort of outsiders in the social innovation movement to participants in it. And that was both interesting to note for the project and also, I think, impacted our perspective. I actually um, led one of the first social innovation uh, certificates at WashU that was interdisciplinary. And so I had that academic lens to it. But my post now at the University of Denver and the work that Chancellor Chop initiated here was really about how can um, all operations of the university be involved in social innovation efforts more from an anchor institution perspective? So indeed, my own um, touch point with social innovation changed pretty uh, dramatically from just academic to more operational. So for folks who are either more familiar with one side of this kind of uh, positive divide or the other, when, when you were thinking in the book and as authors were approaching it about what civic engagement meant from your perspective, what social innovation meant and kind of what you saw, at least at the outset of the project, as the basic distinctions between them, uh, how would you characterize that? Like when, when you began, what were the concepts and what did you see as the, the tensions or the disconnects worth exploring? I think on the civic engagement side, it really was a uh, desire to do good in the world and that that um, uh, looks like uh, community engagement in many different ways, whether that's service learning, it was internships and community, or uh, really any other attempt to uh, hear community voice and contribute in some way. As juxtaposed to social innovation, at least when we started this project, which was uh, much more of an emphasis on the idea and the entrepreneur and um, that uh, in, in, in the light of all, all, the, all the challenges in the world that one individual could have an idea that would make a difference. I think um, by the end of it, that we saw uh, much more similarity between the two. 
So say, say a little bit more about that, like that, that evolution, uh, of perspective, like, like in the end, is there a book to be written about these, these two different ideas? Like what makes them different once you get deeper into them or what, what was interesting to you about the commonalities that you started to see? I think the commonality that emerged, uh, during the project and in the contributions in the volume is that um, both uh, the civic engagement movement, and we're not the first to note this at all, as you all know, Andrew, uh, had lost in a lot of ways its democratic impetus. And, um, I, and though probably the civic engagement movement was less familiar with um, the absence of that democratic impetus. In other words, I think we thought we were doing it. Uh, the social innovation movement, I think, um, in some ways, I don't know if Amanda agrees with this, in some ways never claimed it. Um, it really was outside of politics. And uh, in the end, what we found, the convergence that the volume, I think, makes really clear is that um, we both we wanted to reclaim both movements want to reclaim that democratic impetus, particularly at this historical mm -hmm. moment when. I, when there's a lot of thought that uh, that liberal democracy is under threat in the United States and in other Western democracies, and that universities have a very special role to play in uh, fostering uh, citizenship and democracy amongst our students. I think on the social innovation side, one thing that struck me over the last five years since we began this project is that... Um, uh, we had in some ways put up a straw person argument and framework on on what social innovation was and example after example came uh, came out that uh, indeed uh, many programs were teaching more of a community engaged perspective and how to actually utilize for example design thinking as a way to prioritize community voice in the design process and uh, in the implementation process I've also found on the public policy side of this that that finally, uh, people when they talk about scaling and innovation, they're talking about how can it find how can that innovation find its way into um, into state uh, or federal policy. And I think our students are recognizing that in some ways they are unprepared uh, to see their idea through that process, and so are hungry for more information on how to mobilize com you know community voice in a way that influences policy and um, helps move their ideas forward. I want to underscore the point Amanda just made. I think that that, that is something that uh, I think both the book makes clear and in conversations with colleagues at Duke who do social innovation, this scaling question of social innovation and where resources come, you, you know, despite the fact that philanthropy has blossomed and there's so much private money, nothing matches what governments can do. And if you look at innovations like um, and we, we make this point in the book, if you look at what were innovations, things like Teach for America and City Year, those have both relied on a very significant government funding to scale. And that, there's the real beauty in sort of the connection between innovation and, um, and democratic politics, right? These are ultimately political questions and where governments will put resources. And in a lot of ways, we hope the book helps us reclaim that part of this. That is that you can unite these uh, approaches in, um, in, in the broader public policy uh, questions. 
So, you know, I think one one interesting thing that that you just flagged and and that also I think shows up in the book is this. Well, first of all, that there are kind of you you started with a tension between these two ideas and you ended up identifying tensions within each of them that have a certain kind of parallel structure uh, and except in, in a certain way, they move in reverse. That is to say that an initial democratic impulse that maybe motivated a lot of the civic engagement work kind of disappeared as opposed to um, in the social innovation space where maybe that's being discovered for the first time. And I'm wondering what your thinking is, you know, as as you indicated, we're at a moment where the, the kind of question of democracy has a new salience for, for many people, both inside and outside higher education, across the world for all kinds of reasons. And I'm wondering if you think um, what the fit is ultimately. That is to say, is the social innovation space suitable for kind of integration with these democratic questions? Is the framing right? Um, and, you know, obviously social innovation has the language of social entrepreneurship sometimes in it, sometimes not, sometimes as a critique, whatever. Uh, community engagement took a turn in a direction that focused much more on service as opposed to the political character. Are, are these things, can they now be fitted back into the democratic conversation comfortably? Or is there some third thing that we need to be thinking about? What do, what do you end up thinking about uh, those relationships? I take this to a space that I'm not, I'm not sure Eric does. Um, I thought we were going to be at an impasse on that final chapter with, with this content that I'm about to share. I actually think that the next iteration of this reflects the uh, blurring of disciplinary boundaries, that it reflects what may be an awakening to um, uh, the human project and all its challenges. Uh, the fact that we're recording this on March 9th in the middle of a growing pandemic, I think is significant. And what I see in the merging of these two is that uh, the triple bottom line will become the new standard to which any organization or effort uh, may be held to. So whether uh, it's the profits uh, and making sure that there's profitable outcomes, whether it's the people and making sure that uh, social is achieved, or it's about the planet and ensuring that um, whatever the effort is that is attempting to do good is also doing good by, by the earth. So I actually think that we're on the precipice of something that is um, truly remarkable and one which most campuses are not prepared for. I'm seeing this in my community here in Denver, uh, where uh, the business school dean and myself are being called into multiple organizations, both on the corporate side, traditional for-profit, as well as traditional um, nonprofit that are asking us to help prop up uh, these metrics in a way that's not just corporate social responsibility and isn't just about evaluating program outcomes, but it's really about a larger sense of accountability uh, to the public. I think that's one really important um, uh, 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 trend that has emerged in the time that we have been doing this book. Another really important one that I'm noticing, uh, I'm noticing in Campus Compact, Andrew, I'm noticing it at Duke, I'm noticing it at all sorts of institutions. Uh, you asked the question and you said, or is there a third 
um, thing going on. And that's one thing. Another thing is that I think over the last couple of years, in part because of the Trump presidency, is we're seeing institutes and centers and initiatives on our campuses that are very much focused on politics um, in, in a way that was not happening five years ago. And so uh, voter registration efforts, um, uh, polling places on our campuses, helping students uh, register to vote when they're registering for classes. All of that looks a lot different than it did five years ago. I think maybe if we were to write this book again, God forbid, um, it might be that um, there'd be a third, you know, not only um, the triple bottom line that Amanda has become very interested in, but also sort of civic engagement, social innovation and politics. Because uh, you have a project on this, Andrew. We have a project on this. And I think we have, you know, the conclusion of the book is that both of these movements um, have missed this a little bit. And uh, our campuses are, are uh, emphasizing this again or newly, either within the movements or separate from the movements. And I think that really varies depending on our campuses. Eric and I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post, must have been early 2010s, uh, around um, us bemoaning the fact that our students were protesting, that there, <laughs> there was not um, a sense of outrage in uh, the generation that we were teaching at that point. Well, fast forward eight years, and they took us up on the charge. For sure. And I think that appetite for change has become almost insatiable. And it's it's our opportunity to walk into this space to help them see policy and political action as tools for change that they just didn't they didn't grow up with. Um, they didn't have civics required for high school graduation. And they arrived on our campuses thinking that charity was the way to change. And now they, they, they realize that's not the way. When, when you think about things you either discovered through doing the work on the book uh, or that are actually just described in the book, et cetera, what kinds of practices uh, are you seeing that that you see as particularly promising at kind of bridging some of these divides and uh, and engaging students in the ways you think makes sense, uh, given the kind of the multiple interests in kind of building this capacity for envisioning change as well as working to effectively bring it about? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that uh, we've been trying to do at Duke, and I think we see this more broadly, I think of um, the pathways that come out of the Haas Center at Stanford. That is to, um, I run a certificate at Duke on civic engagement and social change. And, and basically what we do in, in, in that undergraduate certificate is say to our students, um, if you want to achieve social change, there are a variety of ways to do it, right? Um, you can set yourself on fire in front of the Pentagon, right? We don't encourage our students to do that. Um, and, or you can, um, you can give money or you can volunteer in your community or you can develop an app. Uh, so there, so to, to, to be uh, relatively agnostic onto the path uh, as to the paths that our students can take, but to bring all of those paths together and to show our students there are a variety of ways to achieve social change. My students in, in a course I'm teaching now, just as an example, read 
um, Theta Scotchpole's book on the rise of the Tea Party, because uh, we have to also be really careful that the left doesn't have a monopoly on the desire for social change. And so the Tea Party is a great example of achieving social change. In a lot of ways, it led to Trump. And so the kinds of organizing that the Tea Party did, the grassroots movement, uh, the the uh, very um, uh, 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 generous external funding that the movement received, or the Tea Party is a great example that our students can learn from on all the different ways they may want to achieve social change. Now, there's a caveat there too. We want to expose our students to the argument also that it's not up to universities to achieve, that universities shouldn't be teaching social change. As Stanley Fish put it, um, the job of universities is to understand the world and not change it. I don't agree with that, but it's an important perspective that we also want to include in the conversation on this. I think the rise in um, community-based projects that are interdisciplinary, that upend the semester or quarter and encourage deeper, harder questions and work and partnership with community is, is an opening. And I can give one example from my campus. We had co-faculty from engineering and social work teach a class on human-centered design, and they did this in partnership with a youth-serving homeless agency, where the youth that were actually seeking services at the organization became uh, then the third aspect of of co-teaching. And as the students went through this project over the course of a year, so they they hung together across quarters, what they found was that um, what was holding the young people people back were actually local policies around how homelessness was addressed. So it wasn't about creation of something new necessarily. Um, It did lead to some youth action participatory research that uh, provided data and testimony for for some of the local youth who who were living uh, in the homeless uh, shelter to then uh, advocate for some of those changes. I, and to me, that's the, that's, that, that's the best part of learning, to be in partnership with community and to actually have not only understanding results, but then uh, and understanding on all parts where information could be used for action. Are you seeing evidence of more comprehensive approaches in institutions uh, grounded in the curriculum, uh, built into campus cultures, uh, whether, say, supported through organizations like Ashoka, Ashoka U and, and their uh, kind of campus initiatives or the, the way the Carnegie classification is influencing people. Are, are you seeing directional changes that seem at the depth that uh, are kind of necessary to, to change the way really graduates are approaching big questions, or are you mostly seeing right now smaller examples of the kind of integrative thinking Amanda was just describing uh, that that kind of hint at the directions that you'd like to see institutions go? I see some of this emerging from maybe Anchor Institution uh, 2.0. There is a national effort through uh, QMU, and then also um, there are a few foundations locally here in Denver that are supporting the campuses to um, 
not just claim their economic impact, but to look at how they actually improve the region socially. And uh, one example of this is that our sustainability office has been working closely with the city and with, um, I think they have 40, more than 40 students involved in this initiative from a range of schools and programs across campus as to how the university designs a more um, uh, healthy uh, campus that is actually benefiting the region and social ways. So I, I do, I, that, again, that's just my lived experience and seeing this here. I think the University of San Diego has an excellent case study in our book where they actually demonstrate how that, as, as they utilize their strategic planning process and its implementation to actually have this as its frame. So they, they could point to multiple examples uh, of how they're operationalizing social innovation, community engagement in, in a more local level uh, policy action. I also think, um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know this empirically, but we have some references to it in the book that uh, it's really important to look at the institutional structure on our campuses as to where these sit. And uh, we trace a little bit the evolution of social innovation and social entrepreneurship, which started in business schools and have now become really embedded campus wide. And I think um, if we were to, you know, do an empirical look at this, what we would find is that um, the social innovation and civic engagement movements are institutionally more linked than they were when we started this project. That is, um, they may report to the same place at the Suera Center at Brown, which has an excellent contribution in the volume. They sit in the same place. Um, I stepped down recently, but led the civic engagement efforts on our campus and was also the co-leader of Ashoka. And so um, I, I think that's actually a really good trend and is really the trend we wanted the book to contribute to. We wanted the book to um, have these movements speak to each other. And I think uh, for, for those people who uh, read the book, they will find that that's what we do in it, that, 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 that they're speaking to each other. And that's what we should be doing in higher education is speaking to each other and um, that's definitely emerged from this volume and represents what's happening at our institutions. I know there's some work in the book that looks at kind of student understandings of these concepts and uh, yeah, and their associations with them. And I'm wondering what, first of all, what strikes you about that and also what might matter about that? Like, is it important that students understand these different frames? Is it important uh, that they have vocabulary that relates to this? Or how should we think about what are our goals with respect to students thinking about civic engagement and social innovation ought to be? I'm glad you asked that question, Andrew. So my colleagues at Duke uh, uh, who are from our service learning program did a really, really fascinating study, um, which is summarized in the book, uh, amongst peer institutions on word associations between service learning and social entrepreneurship. And, uh, you know, a couple of examples, humility uh, or the word humble, um, 76% of students associated that with service learning, uh, 10% of our students associated that with social entrepreneurship. Uh, that's, that's I, th I think, one really good example. Another one, ethical, 64% of our students associated that with service learning 
and 25% with social entrepreneurship. I think here's what, uh, you know, David Scobie's contribution in the volume, which uh, David is such a thoughtful man and um, I know influenced my thinking on this issue as well as Amanda's. You know, he, he talked about um, the difference between uh, chutzpah for the social innovation entrepreneurship movement and humility for the civic engagement movement. Now, that's painting with a very broad brush, but I think the important thing to take from that is many of us on our institutions are sometimes want to push our students to be more humble, to have more humility. Um, and yet the emphasis on innovation and entrepreneurship, I think, sometimes stands in the way of that because it's, it, it can be um, at its core much more individualistic. So the findings of this study by our colleagues, I think, are really important for people who are involved in these movements to, uh, to take to heart as we think about what we're teaching our students and how we're uh, uh, teaching them to be in the world. I think the concepts matter a lot. I um, Your question prompted me to remember my dissertation and my study of T.H. Marshall and how citizenship has been defined over time. And when we don't have concepts anchored to that construct, uh, we're not exactly sure what we're talking about with one another. And so having conceptual uh, definition and congruency, I think, is important. What I'm seeing is that we're not taking the time to have those kinds of conversations conversations at a faculty and administration kind of level. I think we're uh, much in reactionary mode and these require careful, deliberative discussions that I actually think that if we took the time to do more often and perhaps on a public stage, it could ignite our students' imaginations and also make uh, their learning uh, and our objectives for it more clear. I want to uh, make sure, first of all, to apologize. Anytime I cause someone to remember their dissertation, I feel like I've done them great harm that, you know, I have to take responsibility for. But Amanda, uh, it shows you how young Amanda is because she remembers her dissertation. <laughs> there we go. Exactly. Mine is certainly in the midst of time, and that is that's best for everyone. Uh, so what are what are things that um, that you you are seeing that kind of show up in different ways in different sectors. I know a number of the examples that we've talked about here have been kind of from uh, research universities, uh, private institutions, I think, have gotten a lot of mention. Are, are you seeing ways in which this shows up differently? I'm thinking particularly about, for example, this question about humility, which has a certain resonance at elite institutions where, uh, you know, if we think about community colleges, I think people are very focused on trying to develop confidence in students to see themselves as as uh, in a position to make change. And I'm wondering if in the work you did on the book, how that's shown up or just things that you've seen going on out there? Well, I, I think I, I, it's a really good point, Andrew. You know, we, we um, where we stand depends on where we sit. Right. And um, as and so uh, uh, given our place in elite institutions, that is the the, the challenge that we faced. And it's a I think it's a constant struggle. I think we both want our students to have the kind of audacity to uh, imagine a great impact on the world. And we also simultaneously say to them, not so fast. Uh, and so uh, I think that's our problem. I think we, in a lot of ways, who are at elite institutions, create that tension. 
And uh, it's incumbent upon us to help our students navigate it um, and not crowd out the place for um, other people to take different approaches to this. I think what I'm seeing in that way is is, um, a a thankful benefit of our current zeitgeist. So if we think about the fact that uh, since we started uh, this effort, Eric, um, Black Lives Matter uh, was born, the Me Too movement, I, I see diversity, equity, and inclusion as a thrust on our campuses in ways that it, it hasn't been before and in ways that it is so badly needed. And I'm seeing that um, many state schools, community colleges are, um, are leading in, in those efforts. And I think it will, um, I, I mean, it behooves us to really look at our civic engagement programming and courses, as well as social innovation from this the same kinds of lens. So Eric, I know that you have been recently engaged in a project focused on higher education uh, in the the age of Trump. And I'm wondering if if there are if you could say a little bit about what that project is and also how it connects to to the things you were thinking about as you put this this volume together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for asking that. Yeah, so I'm involved in a project at, Go- at Duke called Trumpism in American Higher Education. And what I'm trying to do is start a conversation on our campus and in higher education more generally on um, what the impact of Trumpism, um, the, the kinds of nationalism and nativist uh, rhetoric and policies that come out of this administration are having on our campuses. And I mean that in a couple of different ways. Everything from um, uh, should leaders of our institutions be speaking out more about the threat to liberal democracy? If it is fundamental to our missions that we train citizens to be, uh, we train our students to be citizens and in a liberal democracy, and we think some of the policies coming out of this administration threaten liberal democracy, shouldn't we be saying something? And I think what we have found is that for very understandable reasons, though I'm sometimes frustrated by it, our leaders have been very reluctant, with some exception, to take this on. Um, But there's other issues too. Things like, how do we deal in the classroom with with this particular historical moment to both, for my own teaching and civic engagement, to both let my students know that I have a very particular view on this, that I think liberal democracy is under threat, and that I don't want to squelch conversation um, from students who may disagree with that. And so, you know, we just spent a, 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 a class period in my class on civic engagement um, where students had to come in and say the Trump administration and its policies are, are doing everything that they possibly can to defend democracy. Make that point. Make that argument as well as you can. And what they what we talk about is withdrawing from international organizations and treaties as a way of protecting national sovereignty, for example. Unseating the deep state is another way that you might say if you supported this administration um, that, um, that they're defending democracy. I have taken a, a very different approach than I have in my entire career in higher ed, which is that I tell my students exactly what I think, and I try to make it a very open, um, a very open conversation. The last thing I'll say about the project is uh, our institutions have been vocal when there are particular policies 
that that are aim that that affect our institutions very closely. So, for example, the endowment tax on the elite institutions, um, DACA policies, which affect students on our campuses, immigration policy, which threatens the globalization of our campuses. What I'm trying to convince our leaders of is that liberal democracy is also really close to our campuses. We should be speaking out on that more as well. Amanda, are there uh, scholarly directions for you that kind of uh, represent where, where this has taken you as well? So my current efforts are more on how to support faculty in their public impact scholarship. I just authored a piece with five of my uh, dean colleagues in social work for the Journal of Social Work Research. And uh, I think it earned me then chair of our scientific society in social work. So I'm responsible for our 2021 conference, which is our um, 25th anniversary. And the theme is... uh, Uh, social work science for social change. So what does it mean to be a scientist in this era when facts are uh, not respected, when science is not brought to bear for decision making? And how can you position yourself as a scholar for that maximum impact? So we have an initiative here on campus and we're looking to try and do something across schools of social work in a nation that is really about how to translate your work, how to ensure that um, you have uh, tools in your tool bag to influence the policy process and how you can build uh, coalitions around your research evidence. So, uh, So for me, it's really looking at how to create a generation of change agents in our faculty. I mean, Amanda, I'll just add, um, I think we just identified our next project because uh, the, the, uh, because the part of, uh, of my Trumpism project at Duke that has gotten the most resonance as people are reluctant to touch politics because they fear it's partisan, and I don't think it is, but let's accept their uh, reticence. They do talk about defending science. Um, and so what are research universities and looking at the challenge to science as a real threat to our institutions? And there, what's really interesting is then the conversation is not just amongst political scientists and sociologists and social workers, but it's amongst our colleagues in the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke, our biology department. And I think that's uh, a really exciting uh, place to go. So if we can think of a title for this uh, book and Andrew will send us a contract, uh, where we, 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 uh, we'll deliver something soon, Andrew. Uh, you know, we don't often have breaking news on the Compact Nation <laughs> podcast, but here it is. You heard it here first, the next uh, McBride-Malin partnership uh, and I like that we're also simultaneously doing business here. This is good. We're getting a lot done. Uh, well, the book is Connecting Civic Engagement and Social Innovation Toward Higher Education's Democratic Promise by Amanda Moore McBride and Eric Malin and uh, published through Campus Compact's Partnership with Stylus. Uh, and it's available now. Uh, and Eric and Amanda, thank you so much for joining me on the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you, Andrew. I really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate your leadership and Campus Compact keeping the movement going. We are back. And in part because 
there's a lot of complexity in our world. We thought it was still important to focus on what sparks joy in the face of all the craziness. Uh, Marisol, what's sparking a little joy out there in the land of Lincoln? Hmm. Well, I am close to finishing my dissertation, so I think by the end of next week, I should be finished with my manuscript and ready to send it to my committee to set up my defense. So that is sparking a lot of joy for me. Uh, what will spark more joy is once I pass my defense, ordering my tiara that sits Dr. Morales, that will spark the most joy for me. And not just for you, I want to be clear. Yeah, that will be my new headshot. So just like FYI, look out for it on the compact webpage uh, sometime soon. Yeah, I was assuming you were going to get me a T-shirt with that image on it. Oh, that is a great idea. Just saying. A staff gift. Yeah, I can can make that happen. Emily, what is sparking joy for you? You know, I actually have a couple of coronavirus-related joys happening because, um, you know, yesterday I have finally had a chance to do my sort of extra stuff run to the grocery store, and there was just so much bonding. Like, I've never talked to people in the grocery store line quite this much, and it was just like a lot of camaraderie and also confusion over every why everyone's buying so much toilet paper but other than that it was like heartwarming you know um to see that and i also have seen i think a lot of folks recognizing who is most vulnerable in this moment and um thinking about how to use their resources to um so f- support food pantries support other programs and organizations and really recognizing that for anything my family is going through, it's nothing compared to many. And there's a lot I can do to help. And I think I'm at least seeing a lot of people thinking about that, which feels also, um, very, uh, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Just very positive and and good to see. And it's nice to have people actually pull together, but not just pull together with those closest to them, pull together really as a community. I have a, a related joy spark. I don't know what the noun is that I'm looking for. Um, which is, so first of all, uh, a lot of joy for me sparked by just the responses that we got from our community to our having to cancel our conference. And, um, just so many people, uh, recognizing all the work, the disappointment, um, expressing their own disappointment at not being able to connect with colleagues from across the country and have the kind of learning and uh, just the enriching experience that they've had either at our conferences before that they were looking forward to for the first time for those who are new. Um, people calling me up and texting and just indicating in a bunch of different ways that they either just that they were thinking about us or that they really wanted to help in some specific way and people figuring out some creative ways to do that. Um, so that has just been very gratifying, uh, in the, in the context of just, you know, again, in the, in the bigger context, a small thing, obviously, but for us, you know, something that felt big. Uh, and then relatedly, I have had the experience partly because unraveling big events you were planning to do creates a set of practical issues and whatever. And so I've ended up in conversations with a number of other leaders of organizations dealing with the same issues. And, and also just talking to some of our 
member presidents about the way they're, uh, the, you know, the problems that they're trying to solve and, and again, the way they're thinking about their students and whatever. And it has been striking to me just how seriously people are taking their responsibilities and how uh, generously they are, they're trying to, um, yeah, trying to solve these problems. I, I saw, um, I mean, this has been kind of now floating around on the internet, but um, Berea College where in Kentucky, where Lyle Roloff's uh, is the president, he's also the chair of the board of uh, Kentucky Campus Compact. And they, I think, have been getting a lot of well-deserved praise for taking a very student-focused approach to how they're dealing with this, recognizing that many of their students would not have internet access at home and they can't just send them home, recognizing that there are uh, financial expenses associated with suddenly having to travel at a moment that you weren't expecting to, et cetera. And really, um, so just, I've seen tons of examples of that. And I think at at a moment where I don't think it's overly partisan to note that we haven't seen that kind of uh, focus from our national leadership in a consistent way. The number of folks at local levels, organizational levels, institutional levels who are stepping up uh, that, I don't know if it's joy exactly, but it has been, uh, it's made me feel better about the world we live in. I think related to that, what uh, I guess this sparks a little bit of joy for me and that hope that we can actually continue this is that when it's needed, we can actually move and do things quickly. We can move institutions, organizations, structures quickly. Right. Um, And that if we can continue that same energy uh, for um, after this is over and to addressing some of the deep inequalities that we have, that would spark a lot of joy for for me and thinking that if we put our minds to it and and our efforts uh, and it comes from the ground up, we can actually do that pretty effectively. Agreed. Uh, Well, that is it from us here at the Compact Nation podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening. Rate and review us if you are moved to do so. It it helps us out. Uh, If you have questions, suggestions, you can email us at podcast at compact.org or uh, join in on social media with the hashtag compactnationpod. And uh, I hope everybody stays safe, stays healthy, uh, thinks about the folks in their lives who might need a hand right now, and also just thinks about the ways all of us can try to protect each other by minimizing the degree to which we're helping this virus move around the world. So thank you all for the conversation and uh, we will, we'll be back with you soon. Bye-bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat. (laughs) 